and then we're gonna make another right when we get to the next corner. Okay. Keep me honest in, in guiding me, okay? This is a drive Uvine Whistler used to make all the time. A short way from her home just outside LA to the place where her late husband, Lyman Bostock, is buried. We're making the drive together on this early spring afternoon. Just the drive itself brings Uvine gently back to their life together. You know, it didn't, it didn't exclude you from all that we thought we would get away from in New York. And I really think that amplified the pressure on him. Well, it obviously did. More than you realize because people have more access to you. We're going to go all the way down to that red light down there and make a left. Okay. Actually, we're going to make a right. The cemetery's on the right. Okay. Uveen is holding an old map of the memorial grounds. Its creases and folds permanent, creating a natural grid on the paper. I think I'm crazy to have this after all these years. Park Cemetery. This is a very large cemetery. Mm-hmm. Inglewood Park Cemetery is more than 100 years old and was billed as the largest cemetery in the world when it first opened. It lies on a high strip of ground in Inglewood, less than five miles from the Vermont Square neighborhood of Los Angeles, where Lyman spent much of his childhood. We're on Sunset Vista? Yes. Okay, we're going in the right direction. The cemetery spreads across 200 rolling acres, divided into differing sections. It's not an easy place to navigate, especially through memory. 342 Parkview. Now we just need to get out and walk and find it. Because we're here. Yeah. You want to drive or you want to walk? I think walking is nice. I keep this in the car because I never know when I just want, want to come and just sit. I'm getting more sun today than I've gotten in a long time. Sitting out on the patio and being out, I need to get out more. We are looking in this section for lot 342, Grave D. There are no headstones in this part of the cemetery only grave markers set flat into the grass. Finding Lyman's marker proves more difficult than Uveen expected. So, we search. It's probably somewhere. I remember a tree. Okay, this is our row. Parkview, three, four, two. Where are you seeing the numbers? Here. After spreading out and walking along different roads, trying to find the numbered lots of the graves, Uveen locates it. Lot 342. It's Lyman's marker. Oh, it's scratched. Oh, no, that's the line of the baseball. And his mom is right next to him. And that's his aunt, Doris. The marker is modest. It reads, Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr. Below the name, beloved husband, and son. And below that, the date he entered the world, November 22, 1950, and the date he left, September 24, 1978. 
A few hundred yards away, a group surrounds a fresh grave where a burial has just happened. There's a band playing there to mark the occasion, and some of the music is carried to us by the stiffening winds. This is here, but he's not here. He's with me, so. And I think now that we've gone through this process and I'm hearing clips and getting more input on things that I was, didn't know that I could come back with a, with a, a more um, calm, serene place of acceptance. That's what you feel now, standing mm -hmm. here? Mm-hmm. I can just say you did the best you could. And be at peace with that. Gone too soon. In the more than 150-year history of Major League Baseball, only one player has ever been murdered during a season. This is the story of that player, of that murder, and the story of what happened to the man who murdered him. For Fox Sports Audio, I'm Tom Rinaldi, and this is Wesley, the story of the life, career, and death of Lyman Wesley Bostock. of young players need to know the story. Well, I'd be down, Leonard Smith. You eliminated a person's life and you didn't even have the right guy. Like that's how reckless you were. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. He didn't make it to heaven. He's burning in hell right now. Lyman Wesley Bostock made it to heaven. Episode 8, The Marker. Across its acres, Inglewood Park Cemetery is the final resting place for legendary names and outsized lives. Ray Charles is buried here, and Ella Fitzgerald. So is Sugar Ray Robinson, and Robert Kardashian, and Kurt Flood. Lyman Bostock was buried here when he was just 27 years old. As for the man who killed him, he would spend decades in the same three-story brick apartment building in Gary, Indiana, where the police arrested him, living his life less than seven city blocks from where he fired the shotgun that took Lyman's life. That fact is at once meaningless and enraging, marginal and impossible. It's the tragedy of it. He had no business dying. Like, he had no business dying. Lyman Bostock didn't do anything. He was just in the stupid car. Like, that's what's so infuriating about it. There was no reason for him to be shot. That's Jeff Perlman, who wrote a powerful piece about Lyman Bostock back in 2008, the same year I worked on a TV piece about him for ESPN. 
The story is centered in Lyman, but of course, can't be written without Leonard Smith. And Perlman's feelings about Smith rise to the surface, even all these years later. He was in the car, and this asshole just thought, you know, and his rage. I mean, it's just to eliminate, it's just, I, when I think about it, it actually infuriates me, stuff like this. Like, you eliminated a person's life, and you didn't even have the right guy. Like, that's how reckless you were, and that's how messed up you were, that you just thought it was in your power and that it was your responsibility to shoot into a car window and shoot the guy, and oh, by the way, he had nothing to do with your shitty life. Two thousand miles away from Lyman's resting place, that anger lies somewhere in me, too, as I approach Leonard's old apartment on a winter day in Gary. Jackson Street is blighted now, its houses hollowed or boarded up, the block is almost entirely abandoned. Still, when I enter through the front door of 1511 Jackson Street, I'm anxious about who or what might be inside. I think we ought to try to go in. Make my way through the, through the overgrown thicket, if you will, on this pathway. Try the front door. It's open. Everything has been ripped off the walls. You can hear it here. Stepping through the rubble, almost like it's been bombed out. The apartment is vacant, but not empty. There's trash everywhere. And for some reason, a large collection of shoes sits on the floor of what looks like the living room. Sam, come on up. The floors have warped and buckled, and the carpet is worn and soiled. Bookshelves have collapsed on each other. There are plastic bags and empty beer cases, evidence of squatters, perhaps. But it's clear, no one's lived here in a long time. Certainly not Leonard Smith. That's because he's dead. Smith died in December 2010, two and a half years after our encounter on the sidewalk outside this apartment. You heard parts of that encounter in our last episode. Don't want to talk to you. I have no comments. Thank you. Goodbye. Leonard. Goodbye. Leonard Smith outlived the man he murdered by more than 32 years. And according to police records, he never committed another crime. But what was his life like in all those years. The only insight we got came from one of the men who arrested him for Lyman's murder. Kenneth Shannon was a homicide detective with the Gary Police Department back in 1978. And years later, he told us about the time he crossed paths with Leonard Smith. I be damned, Leonard Smith. I couldn't believe it. That's when I went and talked to him, made sure it was him, and it was him. 
I didn't know he had been released. After I left the Gary Police Department, and I went to work for the University Police Department, uh, Purdue University in Calumet. And I was walking through the student area one day, and I saw a guy sitting there having a drink or eating something, and that was good old Leonard. And I said, Leonard, he looked at me, when the hell did you get? He said, man, I've been out. What was his demeanor? He was just, when he saw me, I think I made him a little uneasy. I don't think he was real comfortable after he saw me. Why? Because he knew I knew about his past. What was he doing on the campus? How was he living his life? What was he living with? What did he carry inside him all those years? That's what I tried to find out from Smith when I approached him outside his apartment back in 2008. Do you have anything to say, Leonard, about what happened? Nothing, no comment. Nothing to say about what happened 30 years ago. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You don't understand English. That's what Leonard told me. He was right in one sense. There was a lot I didn't understand. There were never any answers, at least none that I found, and none that he gave. But that's not why our encounter on Jackson Street has stayed with me for all these years. Maybe I didn't even fully understand why it has sat inside me, like a weight and a regret, until speaking with the producer of the original TV piece, Willie Weinbaum. We wanted to hate Leonard Smith in 2008, 30 years after he killed Lyman Bostock. We wanted to hate him. When Willie asked me a simple question for this project, I finally gave some voice to what I've thought about these past 14 years. My question for you is, what do you think you should have done differently? I feel many of the same things now, even all these years and all these stories later. This notion that I haven't been able to reconcile. What value, Willie, is there in giving voice to questions even if they're not going to be answered? Just so that you know the subject heard them asked. That the man who killed Lyman Bostock in the tiny space of time that I'm going to ever have with him, at least he's going to hear these questions, whether he answers them or not. Questions like, what have you lived with all these years? Why do you live six blocks away from where you killed Lyman? What guilt, if any, do you feel? Why haven't you ever reached out to Lyman's family? What responsibility do you take? What have you learned about Lyman Bostock? any of those things, whether he answered them or not, I still haven't reconciled whether that's just selfish on my part, Willie, or whether there is real value there in knowing that this is likely the only encounter we're ever going to have. He clearly doesn't want to talk. I realize that the entire purpose of posing a question is to get an answer. But maybe is there another purpose in this rare instance of simply having the audience hear, watch, know that this man 
faced those questions. He heard them posed to him. Whether he'd ever answer them or not, to know someone asked him. My sympathies are with Yuvine and with Tom Turner and with the people who lost a loved one and with the people who never knew what they lost because Lyman Bostock, Lyman Bostock would have made a difference for a lot of people and he never got the chance to do it. He did something he doesn't want to talk about. Maybe he regrets it to the nth degree. Maybe he knows he snuffed out a life that never should have ended that way. Maybe the burden that he lived with all those years contributed to how he looked that day. We will never know that. If you listened to our last episode, you remember that encounter between Smith and me outside his apartment building back in 2008. Leonard. Goodbye. By now, you know it was me who tried to talk to Leonard. But the Lyman's friends and family, I was hardly the focus. I was just the guy who asked Smith questions. The guy who never got any answers. I do remember watching a documentary or um, some coverage at one point uh, to where they were trying to make contact with him uh, a few years back. I don't know how many years ago, but it was in the recent the recent years. And, uh, you know, he didn't want to speak to the reporters. That was me, Bill. That was you? That was me. This is Bill Brooks, Lyman's brother-in-law and friend. I mean, just me watching that, I just got a vibe. I just didn't get a good vibe, you know? Bill, what should I have asked him? I don't recall exactly what you asked, but I'm thinking just in general, I mean, <laughs> do you have any remorse? But that doesn't bring anyone back. Why did he do what he did? Life is too precious. Bill's brother, Vincent, had his own view of Leonard in remembering the encounter. I saw where one of the guys was trying to interview him at that location. That was me. That was you? <laughs> okay. Wow. So, what did what did you see? You got to see him eye to eye, right? I did. I didn't see any remorse. I didn't see it. I think he was just trying to block it out too. He didn't want to talk about it. He 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 was trying to move on. I think maybe he really regretted what he did, but he didn't show it, or he couldn't tell no one. You know, he couldn't release it but internally it ate him up. What do you think he lived with? <sighs> Guilt. He may not have been guilty by his peers, but he, he was guilty by uh, just life, right and wrong. Uh, God knows what he did. God knows his heart too, without him saying a word. Leonard Smith never gave any answers, but I've come to understand that most times, there aren't any. We want the resolution, the closure. We want a period to end the sentence. Maybe that's the difference between stories and events, things we tell ourselves 
and the things that happen to us. Events don't come with punctuation or need solution. Just the burden of having to live with their wake. We endure over time with our feelings subjugated or buried or faced. But those feelings are there when it comes to Leonard Smith. Here's Lyman's cousin, Anthony Jones. If I probably had a baseball bat or a gun or something, I probably just shot him too for retaliatory actions towards what happened to me that he took someone from my family. You know, that meant a lot to us. Because after all these years, how he beat the system, you think about all the things that Lyman, Wesley, he fought for, all these things that he was, you know, makes him an angel. But to me, he was like a brother to me. And as revenge, that's how I felt. Still to this day at 66 years old, I still feel the same way. He didn't make it to heaven. He's burning in hell right now. Lyman Wesley Bostock made it to heaven. So they went two separate ways. But still, if he went to heaven, Lyman probably been waiting for him to come up there anyway. And probably would have forgiven him anyway. That was his nature. Decades later, for Lyman's teammates, there remains an anger that still burns. This is Carney Lansford, who was a rookie for the Angels in Lyman's final season. There's no justice if this guy walked up and killed Lyman Bostock, and then he walks out of prison. Now, I sense I heard that he died, but that doesn't matter to me. You walk up to a car and kill somebody like that, and you're only in a mental hospital for six months, there's just something wrong. That was probably as, as devastating as Dr. Lyman actually getting shot killed. For those that loved Lyman, there is something almost as complex as feeling. Memory. Time passes. People forget. And they remember. Again, Vincent Brooks. I just feel like I've been robbed. What were you robbed of, Vincent? Friendship, uh, love, a brother, just special relationship, you know? I just, and I just think he had so much more to give to the world, you know? I think he probably would have ended up being in the Hall of Fame. Players in the Hall of Fame, like George Brett and Rod Carew, agree. He was an artist. I mean, if he didn't have that tragedy appear in his life, and he maintained the same level of consistency with a bat in his hand, we could be talking about, you know, a Hall of Fame player, a 3,000 hit guy, and just one of the greatest players ever to play the game. But unfortunately, it was cut short after four seasons. Well, I think a lot of young players need to know the story, need to know that here was a kid who uh, lost his dream at an early age and that worked his way up to 
get into the major leagues and um, going out and having some success and then eventually uh, was shot and killed. A career that was filled with such potential and cut so terribly short. Lyman played a little more than 500 games in the majors. He never reached the playoffs or the World Series. He never made an all-star team. But what could have been? His 311 career average would be among the top 100 hitters in history if he'd reached the 3,000 at-bats to qualify. That 311 average in his four seasons is the same career average as Jackie Robinson, and it's higher than legends like Hank Aaron and George Brett. Too often, we confuse record and legacy. Record is what we've done. Legacy is what it meant. For those who loved Lyman, a part of that legacy lies in the hurt from his absence. But the greater part, maybe, will always lie in what he meant and the hope for what his life still means. As a voice for racial equality and social justice in college. Here's his brother-in-law again, Vincent Brooks. I think the cause was more important than sport at the time. You know, I, I think that's what it was really all about. I think he was just more of trying to help the situation that everybody was in than more to help himself to progress, I think. He gave up what he loved for a bigger cause. He also remains as a beautiful blend of ball player, an incandescent flare of talent and joy on the field. Again, here's Hall of Famer and teammate, Rod Carew. Here's a guy that was so intense on learning and playing the game, and hitting was the best things that he, that he did in the game. The game was more interested to him than making money. And it's hard to find kids like that. He lasts as an example of a player who put pride in his performance over the size of his contract and who couldn't take a salary if he didn't think he'd earned it. The author, Jeff Perlman. This was not BS. This was not him looking for PR points. This was not him trying to impress people. He just didn't feel like he deserved the money and he was embarrassed because he was brought in to be a great hitter and he was a crappy hitter. And he ultimately turned it around. Then there's Lyman as relative, as mentor, and as friend, as he was to Reggie Williams, who first met Lyman in college. You ever meet somebody, just just click with you. Say, hey man, this guy's for real, you know, no airs about him. You don't meet those type of people that often. And I'm not just saying this because of this uh, little thing you're doing here. It's the truth. When we get together, guys that I still hang around with, that I played ball with, that uh, went to Valley State, Sooner or later, the subject of Lyman Bostock will come up. And to a person, they'll say, man, that brother was something else. He was a real deal. At least he has that legacy. I don't know where you go after you leave here, but uh, wherever it is, I hope he look back down and see the, uh, all the goodwill and love we still have for the brother. 
and as a first love, and later a husband, who never grew old with his wife. In the four decades since Lyman's death, Yuvine remarried, taking the name Whistler, and got divorced, became a mother, and raised a daughter, built a career, and served as a manager for a nonprofit. She made a life for herself and for others. That's why she stopped coming to the small grave marker, why she hadn't been back in much longer than she realized, until we returned that spring afternoon. It had been 17 years. I know the last time I was here, his mother's funeral. And she's 2005? In the sun and the wind, Yuvine pauses for a long moment, looking down at the grave. Her eyes settle on the date, September 24th, 1978. That's been, what, 44 years? My God. 44 years. Yeah, it's been a real journey. Away from the cemetery, now sitting back at her home, I see a grace in Yuvine, a strength granted by what she's endured and a light she continues to share. Time has helped with the pain and with the perspective as she gives voice to what she lost when Lyman died. Because there was so much promise. You know, there was so much brilliance there was so much um, giving. I think of all the people who could have been touched and had their lives changed by him that never had that opportunity. How do you reconcile that? You can't. I put it in a little box up in the top of my closet. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You just have to kind of look at it. I've given myself permission to look at it. And every now and then and go, you know, it's okay. You know, I have to allow myself to be able to look at it, but not be stuck in it. What's in the box? Bright futures. You open it and all these little stars and lights come out. You know, most football players don't get a chance to come back to their home and play. And I think it's a great thrill for me to be able to come back to California and, and try to thrill the fans like I did in Minnesota. Just all the potential, the untapped potential, things that could have been if he was able to fulfill his life. There will always be that box and all it contains, but also, all that's missing. So, as much as we miss what might have been, we're left with what he forever will be. Young and bright, principled and talented, running and swinging. A life not only to remember, but one to inspire. I hope people don't relate to me as a high-paced ball player. Hope they relate to me as Lyman Boston, I go to California Angels. Thank you.
lot of people were involved in a lot of different ways in the creation of this podcast. We're grateful for all their contributions. Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin from Blue Duck Media have been more than great collaborators. They've been true partners in giving the project its shape as wonderful executive producers. From Fox Sports, we are indebted to Eric Shanks and to Charlie Dixon for their support, belief, and encouragement. Thanks to a roster of talented and dedicated colleagues there, including Chase Klein, Jonathan Berger, Matt Engelberg, Michael Vader, and Will Hagel. Our primary team from Blue Duck includes Jen Roman and her outstanding work, and Quincy Tucker, who added to the project in so many ways. We're also grateful for our editorial script consultant and lead researcher, David Sabino. The score and the sound mixing were done by Steve Porter and Porterhouse Media. Mike Goldstein served as an editor, sound designer, and audio field engineer. Alan Chow was our sound engineer in Gary. Adam Howe wrote a biography on Lyman Bostock and served as a story consultant. Audio production support and quality control came from Bed Redman, Olivia Nolan, and Eli Wilkie. Legal counsel came from Caesar Kalinowski. We appreciate all the promotional efforts by the team at Fox, including Andrew Kudverisi and Jace Bandalo. Our deepest thanks to Yuvine Whistler for her willingness to share her story and her experience. We thank her and all of Lyman's family who contributed to this project. Thanks also to Willie Weinbaum, to Major League Baseball, the Los Angeles Angels, and ESPN.